Hi everybody and welcome to the Golders Podcast, where we aim to sprinkle particles of knowledge by engaging and educating. With your co-hosts, father and son duo, Keith and David Mayer. We're excited to have you on this journey with us and we know our wide variety of world-class guests will provide lots of value for our listeners. To ensure you stay up to date with everything we've got going on on the podcast, make sure you subscribe. Today, we're excited to welcome Brian Ashton, MBE, onto the Golders podcast. Brian is a decorated coach, mentor, speaker and consultant and was the head coach of England Rugby Union team when they got to the World Cup final in 2007. He was named a member of the British Empire in 2008 and his vast experiences as a coach and consultant are now being utilised around the world. Brian, welcome and thank you for coming on to the Golders podcast today. Thank you very much indeed, really looking forward to it. So Brian, to us, Goldust is about sprinkling particles of knowledge to help people. What does gold dust mean to you? Um, I suppose something in a similar sort of vein is what I've learned through my life is sort of listening to learn before attempting to help. Um, so it's making real connections with people before attempting to, to help them if it's possible to, to make them better people. Um, my life has been split really between being a teacher, um, being a coach, uh, then being a coach educator. And finally, um, I've done some work for the Premier League football and, and other organisations as, as what they call a mentor. I'm not that desperately keen on the word, to be honest. Um, so because I lived in Italy for three years and speak the language, I decided to swap it for an Italian mafia phrase, word, sorry, which is consigliere, which is advisor. But it, it's got dark undertones in the mafia world, but not in mine. But I think it just fits in well with my approach, sort of consigliere, being an advisor to people. Um, but, but going back to what I said at the start, you know, that, that I found that listening to learn, uh, sorry, listen to learn, uh, it's become really important for me. Um, without getting that connection, that emotional connection, that physical connection, um, that intellectual connection with people, um, before you attempt to help them, it, it actually can make life quite tricky. So if you had to define what coaching is, how would you describe it? Um, it's to help, uh, to help people travel beyond where they think is their potential or worse to that effect. I've never been a great believer in the word potential because I'm not quite sure how you can measure it. I would imagine you can probably do it from a physical point of view in the physical conditioning world, but I'm no expert in that, so I don't know. But I've often seen uh, people who've been told, fantastic, you've reached your potential, when I felt they've still got more to give in a variety of ways. So I think it's coaching, it's, it's pushing people along that road and pushing boundaries and breaking down boundaries. And I, well, one of the phrases I, I've used, um, certainly in the last 15 years or so, is, uh, and I'm not showing off here because I did Latin at Lancaster Royal Grammar School that I've telling you about before, 
is ad infinitum et altra, which is to infinity and beyond. I think, you know, I think certainly in some of the environments I've been in, I've been able to pursue that sort of mindset, try to push A, myself, but even more importantly, um, the people in the environment and the environment itself, the game itself, to another level. And if you have that sort of mindset, then there actually, there's probably no, there's no limit. To infinity beyond almost suggests that there's no limits to what you can do. Very interesting, Brian, there. But, you know, you reflect back to your earlier years in coaching. Yeah. What aspects of your coaching have changed over the years that you feel have impacted both on yourself, your players, yeah. and now yeah. the people that you mentor? I think uh, it's pretty easy to describe what I was like when I first started. Um, I was a command control style of coach. Um, so I was quite dictatorial. I was quite authoritative. I sort of... Um, wanted to be in control of everything that went on, um, to tell players what to do, to tell players how to do it, taking no recognition of individuality in their physical attributes, their technical attributes, their emotional and intellectual attributes. Um, so it's one size fits all, which obviously is looking back is ridiculous. Um, and the reason for that, was, well, there was, I think there were, there are a couple of reasons for that. Number one is there's a lot of coaches, and I, I, you know, I started in 1969 teaching and coaching. Um, a lot of teachers and coaches necessarily have an ego. I think without one, then you'd find it difficult to get into the job in the first place. Um, unfortunately, I had a big one. Um, probably part of my small man syndrome because I was only five foot six and a half, 11 so on, wet through, and I started playing senior rugby. So that was one. Uh, number two was the environment itself. You know, when you taught and coached in, 19, in the late 60s, early 70s, that was very much, command control was very much the style. Uh, everyone did it. So I'd still not developed my sort of leadership role then. I was a follower. So I just follow what other people did. I think the third thing, though, and the biggest one, and I suspect this is probably still... Um, a boundary that young coaches still have to push against and break through. It was the fear, the fear factor, the fear of not being in control of what was going on, the fear of it not looking good, the fear of my peer group of coaches or teachers watching a session or a lesson of mine and thinking, um, this looks a bit chaotic, this looks a bit messy. Um, why is he letting the, um, the pupils or the players sort of experiment and try things? Why is he not telling them what to do? What if things go wrong? Why is he not jumping in straight away and blowing the whistle and say, whoa, whoa, stop, instead of giving them the opportunity to sort of experiment and explore and try and find the, the solutions for themselves? So I think if you, know, if you put all those together, then it was pretty evident that I was going to go down the command control route. The bizarre thing about it, Keith and David, was that um, in my personal life, I told you I've been, I won a scholarship to Lancaster Royal Grammar School, and at the age of 16 in the lower states, I got expelled. So there was obviously a rebellious streak in me. 
and and I also hinted earlier on about my sort of height and weight when I started playing senior rugby. I was pretty tiny. There were some big lads around even in those days. And so I had to be pretty creative and non-conformist in the way that I played. So I was relatively non-conformist in the way I lived, non-conformist in the way I played, but unbelievably conformist and traditional in the way that I taught and coached. So I was a real sort of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde character. And I just feel in my, certainly looking back, reflecting on my early teaching coaching days, I was miles away from being an authentic teacher and authentic coach. You refer back to that dictatorial command where it was very little around guided discovery, asking questions, but what actually guided your beliefs around your approach to coaching? Um, in 1975, um, I went off to play rugby in France. I played for two years in France and three years in Italy. So I had five years on the continent, which actually totally changed you as a person as well, because living in different cultures, different language, and all the other differences that, that go with it. Um, but I met, if we, if we talk mentors or conciliary, whatever you want to do, I met the guy who has had the biggest influence on my coaching and teaching, to be honest, um, in France. And then coincidentally, and very fortunately for me, I, when I went off to coach and play in Italy, he was appointed technical director of the Italian Rugby Federation. This was a guy called Pierre Vilpra, educational background, probably the first genuine counter-attacking fullback in World Rugby Union. So he was a pioneer in his approach to playing. He was a pioneer in, in his approach to education. And he was very much a pioneer in his approach to coaching. In fact, he, you could argue, that I'm going back to sort of late 70s now, 1980, you could argue that 20 years later, he'd still be ahead of the game in some areas of coaching. Um, and I was fortunate to spend quite some time with him. And he was, a, he was a coach that coached the reality of the game as often as possible. So all his sessions were based largely around problem solving and decision making. Um, he, 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 he set up a practice that was always games based. And for him, games based could have been 1v1 in context. Uh, it didn't have to be 11v11 or 15v15 or 13v13. Uh, in his sessions, so he, and he would allow players to explore the the game, the, the practice that he'd set up. And what I learned from him was uh, the importance of, obviously, of the problem-solving decision-making aspects, because that's what happens when you cross the white line on match day. Uh, you're on your own there. There's no coach with you at all. And also, the second thing was, the big difference between approaching coaching like that and the way that I've been doing it was that because of my command control, uh, my sessions were very detailed. I was doing five minutes of this, five minutes of that, 10 minutes of this, and just move from one area to another, irrespective of the sort of success or failure of the previous five, 10 minutes. And, and I, I, well, I, I didn't actually know at the time, but I suddenly realized when I was, uh, talking to him and watching him coach, is the fact that my observational skills have been made redundant because of the way that I organized my sessions. They were so methodical. I knew what was coming next. 
and over a period of time, my players knew what was coming next um, because they'd been through a similar sort of session so many times. And whereas with the way that Pierre Villepreux operated, he set the problem, he set the practice, he defined the outcome that he wanted and he'll step back and then watch the players try to achieve that outcome in whatever way they felt best. So he was observing from a distance, almost like a spectator, but he knew what he was looking for, obviously. Um, and he would step in from time to time and just ask questions. And the first question I always asked them was, how do you think it's going? That was it, how do you think it's going? <laughs> the bizarre thing was that they very often came back with all the negatives. It's very rare that any player came back with the positives to start with, saying, oh, we did this fantastically well, it was all the negatives. But what it allowed him to do was to observe what was going on. And he said to me, he felt that through that, he was coaching uh, the needs of the players, not what he felt before the session the players needed. If, if you sort of get the subtle difference. So with that, so the Brian, need, sorry, yeah, sorry. Just, just saying that the needs of the players emerged from the session in front of him. Uh, and, you know, they could be technical, they could be physical, they could be game intelligence, they could be mental. Um, you know, players couldn't handle situations because of the pressure, etc. But they emerged as the session developed. And so he was able to focus on what he felt would sort of a couple of the most important things um, to help the players improve in terms of dealing with that particular session and that particular principle of play. The interesting, the other interesting thing was that whilst I, and I think a lot of young coaches probably do this, because of the, the detail I put in the sessions, tried to cover a multitude of things in any one session. So jumping around from one thing to another, you know, five minutes on this, 10 minutes on that, et cetera. He just focused on a couple of things. He picked a couple of things out that he thought were really, really relevant to moving the, moving the understanding of the players forward and whatever they're trying to achieve. And he just focused on those two. And, and he tried to select. Um, it didn't always work out like this, but he said he, he tried to select one when the players were in possession of the ball and one when players were without the possession of the ball. Um, so... We actually devised this in the early 1980s. We, we both started using the phrase, we stopped using the defence because we felt it was a negative word. So we use attack with the ball and attack without the ball. <laughs> so you, when you didn't have the ball, the idea was to attack, win it back and score. So everything was sort of attack and positive and win. Brian, when you, you're talking about the players' needs, was that teed up strategically before the session or was it something that would come out organically during the session and it was just a case of really being a master at observation and recognising what was taking place? I think, um, I think it'd be probably be a combination of the two, to be honest, David, because um, I would imagine if you get to know your players pretty well and you, you set up some sort of practice that is games-based, you've probably got a pretty shrewd idea which players might need some help during it. But actually, I mean, it, certainly if you, if, you, if you do something that they've not tried before, then you wouldn't have any idea whatsoever whether players would be able to accomplish um, what it was. So I think it's a combination of the two. 
But, but I mean, you're absolutely right that it doesn't half sharp, sharpen the observational skills of what's going on. And, and I think, and, and obviously that sort of pushes you well away from the command control style of methodology of coaching. Um, it, in fact, it almost pushes us to the opposite end of the spectrum. But what interested me about this was, you know, I, I spent quite a bit of time talking with him when we were in Italy. And I began to understand that actually this style of coaching, the coach became more important than the other one. Because the other one was, you were just like a parade ground instructor going through drills and things that a lot of which have very little reference relevance sorry, to what happened in a game. Whereas this was a, a more holistic and global approach that was actually everything you did was actually relevant to what went on in a game because that's how you set up your practices. And so the coach became more important because what he was doing was actually helping players to perform and improve in the context of what was going to happen and what was like to happen in a game. So he wasn't actually coaching coaching the session or off a session plan. He was actually coaching what's actually occurring in front of him yeah. or helping to facilitate what's actually happening That's, in yeah. front of him. Yeah, great word that, facilitate, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he, he often, he used to use the word now and again, he said, I resource the players um, instead of coach them. Yeah. Uh, and But you're absolutely right that, uh, you know, he, he would, he would have an idea in his head of how the session might pan out, number one. He would have an idea in his head how he wanted the session to pan out what his thoughts were and what the solutions were. Um, but actually, as he often said to me, he said, one of the excitement things, one of the exciting ways of doing this, and these are my words really, because I sort of pursued this when I got back to England, were the sessions became a, an hour of sort of mystery and intrigue because you're never quite sure what pathway the players are going to go down. And sometimes they would completely surprise you and come up with a solution that's different to yours, but actually it was better. Uh, and that was another massive mindset shift for me to be able to, to have the courage to say to the players, fantastic, that wasn't what I was thinking, but actually that's better than the solution I would have come up with, so we'll go with what you want, uh, with what you just come up with. And it, and it became that a part of my... Um, I don't know, it wasn't a crusade, but it, I suppose something close to something close to that in that I always tried from there on in and never, I'm not successfully all the time, because a lot depend on the personnel you're dealing with, um, to try to develop an environment in which the players felt that they were taking their game onto the field. They were taking their game from the training park onto the pitch on match day. This was a game they'd had a big input into. This is how they wanted to play the game, despite the fact that, you know, I played a pretty important observational and guiding role in it as well, but try to sort of try to persuade them down the role that this is how you wanted to play the game. So let's get out there and get on with it. So your, your role as the coach was in some context, very similar to the players then, because you talk about the players and having these practices where they have to be real, they have to make decisions. 
and adapt on the fly. But then as a coach, you were doing the same thing. So you had out a plan of somewhat what you wanted to do, but during the session itself, you had to make decisions based on what you saw. You had to make, adapt and adjust on the fly, which yeah. I guess in some contexts would actually transfer into a game as well that you would have to do when you're managing the game. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and I, I, I honestly, yeah, yeah, you're spot on that. It's a really good description, that. And and I think, actually, what you've you've just nailed it now is this is that, that is the reason why a lot of coaches especially the younger coaches who maybe don't have the confidence and experience and the sort of game intelligence don't go down that route because it's a scary route they think it's a scary route to go down and i think you need to one of the things i always talk to to my coaches about when i'm doing my i'm going to use the word conciliary conciliary work is that they need to become well? The players need to. They need to encourage the players to become students of the game, and they need to become professors of the game. Um, which means they need to understand the the, the game in its holistic, global sense. Um, no, and and I, I mean, I obviously, as you say, you don't know a lot about rugby union, but there's been this proliferation of specialist coaches in the last 10 years or so, that just drives me bloody crazy. Because everybody wants a you know piece of the action. So the chances of mixed messages and uh, even unconscious mixed messages because of the way you speak, the language you use, etc., And the fact that we get 20 minutes with this guy, 20 minutes with that guy in a week, 20 minutes with this guy, then we go to strength and conditioning. Then we might get a sports psychologist in and everybody goes, shit, what are we doing wrong? Uh, and things like and everything's disjointed um but in terms of the way i'm talking about the coaching there that you're actually coaching the game as a whole with without the ball and uh if if you need specialists for any time then you you just pull them in so yeah. you, you talk about being a professor of the game yeah. in terms of as a coach and categorizing yourself or if you were to put yourself in a category would you would you say you were a more of a tactician, more of a developer, more of a, a technical coach or someone that would lead the group or, or several of them? Yeah, well, I, I've actually, there's been a big mindset shift in that as well. So when I started, and this probably won't surprise you, I was more of a technical coach um, because I didn't, the, the only thing I knew about the game was from what I, how I played it. And like I said, I played in a non-conformist manner, which didn't quite fit with the command control teaching. So I, I became a pretty technical coach, but I actually changed over the years through the influence of VLPRO and some of the environments that I, that I coached into. I, I would say, yeah, tactical, but then I've had another mindset shift in the last 15 years or so that I'm actually, I'm not a big fan of the tactical side of the game now. I'm a massive fan of game intelligence. And I think there's a big difference between game intelligence and the tactical side. For me, the tactical side, and I might be wrong in this, but for me, the tactical side is uh, establishing a plan of being able to um, being able to play out that plan in the game. So you know, sort of systems, structures, game plan, four three three, four two three one, or whatever it is in football, and the certain similar sorts of things in rugby as well. Um, but for me, more important is developing players who've got game intelligence 
who can understand when you may have decided, look, this is a framework um, with which we want to play, but actually on the day it doesn't work. So if it doesn't work, what are we going to do about it? Because they're out on the field and they've got to be able to lead that, understand that change is required, um, understand what the change is, and then being able to lead it in the moment on the field and developing players who can do that. For me, it's been a pretty exciting time over the last, you know, last part of my coaching life. You mentioned there, Brian, a little earlier about the tactical side of things and then the game intelligence. Yeah. And I, because you're, you're very much associated to what you feel is actually occurring in front of you. How do players gather that? How do coaches gather that game intelligence? Where does that come from? Yeah, well, I think I, think I was very fortunate uh, in that when I was a youngster, and I, I think you probably remember this, Keith, you might not, David, that we were kids who played, we played in the street. I learned to play football, rugby league and cricket in the street. Uh, and one of the, there were no, never any adults around at all. So you, you learned to be self-sufficient, you learned to be self-managing, you learned to be self-improving, and you learned to play the games in the way that suited you and you learn to fail and then learn from failure and fix it. So it's a sort of fail, learn, fix fast environment, uh, which I think is really important, even at the very top level of sport as well. Um, but it, one, one of the key things for me was that there were no coaches. So there's nobody to interfere with the way you played the game. And you ended up playing, finding out how to play the game uh, in, in, in the way that you thought about it. And I think you became, if, if you wanted to be, I mean, some kids were interested in sports, so they wouldn't. But if you did want to be uh, better, then it, the, that sort of game intelligence developed over a period of time. So I can remember, if I can just give you an instance of my cricket, and I said earlier on, that I, I can't remember whether we were recording or not at the time, but cricket is my favourite sport. Uh, we used to play on a, on a dirt track, uh, between two rows of terrace houses. Um, it wasn't a flat dirt track. We played with a tennis ball, so batting on that was a bit lively. Um, but directly uh, at a 90-degree at a angle to one of the wickets, there was an alleyway, it's about 20 yards long. And if you, if you cut the ball, square cut the ball down that alleyway and it hit the wall at the far end, you got 20 runs instead of just the one because it was very difficult to do. Well, I became pretty adept at this. And so when I went to Lancaster Royal Grammar School, who was one of the top cricketing schools in the north of England, still is, and I suddenly played on a flat wicket, I thought, wow, this game's pretty easy. Um, so, you know, little things like that, the, the environment and the way you use the environment allowed you suddenly to uh, become more adept at adapting and um, being more flexible in your thought and in your actions. And I can remember when I first went to the school that I, I think it was a, in my second year when uh, the first 11 cricket coach came to watch. And he said to me after I cared, I'd scored a few runs, not, not, not a lot, but I'd hit two boundaries in the same way that I used to knock them down the alleyway in Lee. But the ball was nowhere near the position it should be to play that shot. 
But because I've been used to playing on a, on a dirt track with a bouncy tennis ball, then it was pretty easy for me to just lean back and go boink like that. And he said, well, it's a long time since I've seen schoolboys do that. Well, I said, his name was Doug Cameron. I said, oh, Mr Cameron, he said, I used to do it all the time when I was seven or eight year old. <laughs> I don't think he ever believed me. <laughs> But it was, I think those sort of environments help with the game intelligence. The other thing is, I think, too, it's the way that you design your sessions and going back to the problem-solving, decision-making things, um, design base, base sessions on principles of play. Um, so, as I said, I went from being a technical coach to principles and concepts of play coach and uh, I think give, give players opportunities to solve those problems, to, to fail, to learn from failure. Don't step in when they fail. Uh, I mean, when I was a young coach, I must have been the best whistleblower in the northwest of England because I had this bloody whistle around my neck. And every time somebody dropped the ball and made a mistake, stop, start again. Of course, that never happens in a game. You know, you, you lose the ball in the game, the opposite can pick it up and score. You can't say to the ref, hang on a minute, can we have another go? Because we do in training. Because <laughs> the coach just makes us stop and start again. So it's just about putting, wrapping all those things together over a period of time, I think, helps to, and learning too, I think, and going back to the conversation we had earlier on about observational skills, learning when to step in, when things actually probably get in too far away from the players, that, that this is the moment that they need some help, some guidance, some facilitation, some resource, some conciliaring, or whatever you want to call it. Uh, and I think that's an important skill as well. That I'd, the the only way I can I even contemplate that you learn to do that is actually by doing it over a period of time. Um, certainly, I would never. I didn't learn that at all by being a command control coach. I don't think you ever learn to do that sort of thing if you always want to be in control of what goes on. I think it's nice though to be, to reflect back on what you were, how you used to coach, to yeah. now. And I go, I don't know, say in a coaching context to you, Brian, where there's more empowerment. Yeah. Yeah. I, ownership is a word that I prefer to empowerment, I think. And, and don't get me wrong. I mean, I'm a human. Well, I think I'm, I'm a human being like everybody else. You know, human behavior kicks in. And if you've got a, an hour session and after 30 minutes of asking questions and giving players the opportunity to do things and they still fail, then human nature will take over and say, look, just do that, lads, will you? And then we can move on. So there is, there is a role for being direct uh, and instructive at times. But I think, you know, if, if you like that all the time, then I, I know from my educational background that um, the retention of learning is probably 24 hours, not much more, if you tell people what to do. So next week, when the next session comes along, they'll just repeat the same research and you'll have to tell them again. So, yeah, I have moved a long way away from that. But I think on the, I mean, I've been very fortunate to meet some of the world's, in fact, and still work alongside some of the world's best coaches because I still work with New Zealand rugby every year. And my experience of that and my observation of them is the fact that they will move up and down the coaching continuum as they feel it's appropriate to deal with any situation. So at one end, if you've got command control, at the other end, other end it's, it's what you call it, devolved. So you're stepping back 
um, they will move up and down that. They'll probably stay more at the devolved end because uh, they're more player orientated, more player centred, but they're not afraid to jump right back down to the other end if they think it's the, the appropriate thing to do. But I think experience of coaching sort of develops that judgment of when it's uh, it is appropriate to do that. Sure. I got three things for you here: Ooh. responsibility, leadership, yeah. and yeah. problem solving, which we've we've spoke about. As a coach, yeah. how how do you go about developing those three traits in players? Right. Um, well, I think some of the things I've talked about already probably will help with that in terms of the problem-solving, decision-making um, methodology of the sessions where players have to take responsibility for making the right decisions. But, but I actually, I, oh, it's, not, it's not that long ago, actually. It's when I'd finished with England in 2008 and I went back, two years later, went back to live in the north of England. I lived in in the posh part of North of England, Lytham St. Anne's. But uh, I'd actually gone back to my playing roots because my original senior club was Fylde Rugby Club based in Lytham. And um, when I went to live there, Bill Beaumont, who's chairman of World Rugby and ex-captain of England, um, captain of the British Lions, still lives in Lytham. And he said, oh, you'll be doing some coaching, Brian, now you're here, won't you? I said, well, hang on a minute, Bill. I said, I'm 60, what was that, 2010? So I'm 64 years old. I said, why would I want to be doing any coaching now? Oh, he said, well, we need some help. So anyway, persuaded me to do it. I went down there and uh, they had a, a fantastic group of players, amateur players. One or two got paid expenses, I think. So semi-pro stroke amateur players who were more than happy to play in that environment. Didn't want to play professional rugby, though a lot of them could have done because they had good jobs as well. Um, but because I think they've been coached, not, not by the coach at far, but they come back from environments where they've been very restricted in what they're allowed to do on the field, that the plans for them to play, game plans, be very prescriptive. So my, my, I felt my role was to give them, to sort of free them up and give them more responsibility, allow themselves to lead on the field, and so I developed a system and this was completely unconsciously, but I realised at the end of the first season, I did four years there, uh, that this is what it was. And I called it Rolf, R-O-L-F. So it's responsibility, ownership, leadership, leading to freedom. Um, and I did it that way because I felt if you try to develop leadership, if, if you ask players to say, I want you to lead this, a lot of them would turn around and say, well, how? I, I don't know what leadership is. I don't, I don't know what you mean. So it was a drip feed of responsibility first. And, and just to give an example, practical example, sort of in the middle of a session, initially probably when it was going well, I'd just literally step out, step out of the session. In all environments, at school level, international level and club level, when I've done that, that the session has stopped. Everything's come to a standstill. And I've, I was asked the same question. Why have you stopped training? And they said, well, you've stepped out. You, so there must be something wrong. So, so we learned then to, when I step out, you carry on, but you take responsibility for the next five minutes. 
the next 10 minutes, the next 15 minutes, whatever, and I'll stand and watch a session. So that, that was the sort of responsibility thing. It was interesting stepping back and see which people step forward to take responsibility. And obviously that's the part of leadership as well and ownership, but then deliberately moving from that to the ownership side, I would say to them, I give them advance warning. I say, right, I'm now going to step out for 15 minutes. Okay, the session. I'm going to go and sit in the stand. I'm going to watch you as I was a spectator on match day. And I actually want you in two areas in terms of the intensity of the practice and the accuracy of practice. I want it to be better than it was when I was running the session. Mm. So the challenge was there to take it to the next level. So they had to take ownership of the session then. The third, and, and that obviously that, that would develop as well. And then thirdly, the leadership, the uh, direct importance on leadership was, I'd probably give them a, so we train Tuesdays and Thursday nights. And on the end of the Tuesday night, I'd say, right, on Thursday night, this is the uh, first area, the principle of the game that I want to address. All right, I want you guys to run the practice for the first 30 minutes and I'm going to go and sit in the stand and play no part in it whatsoever. So you actually, you just lead the whole session, first 30 minutes of it anyway. And that obviously developed over a period. I didn't start with 30 minutes, I'll probably start with five or 10. But that developed over a period of time. Um, so that's, and then obviously the F is freedom. So once I get to that stage, then you can actually sort of, heave a bit of it, well, heave a sigh of relief and think, right, I'm quite happy to give these guys a bit of freedom now. And we came up, I came up with the phrase of, I'll give you the freedom to play, providing the, the payback from you is that you play with responsibility and discipline. You don't turn it into chaos. If it's in chaos, I don't mind, because I think the way we train, we'll know how to handle that in the middle of a game, but I don't deliberately turn it into chaos. You know, there's still a discipline and responsibility about how you play the games. So that freedom with discipline and responsibility, I think, became a bit of a bit of a battle cry for us. I'm going to go in. I'm going to test my Italian now, Brian. I'm I'm going for it. All right. Okay. And if I get it wrong, you will have to. You might have to correct me. But when coaching or conciliating at the elite level, yeah, what importance do you put on listening? You've spoke about it. It yeah. was the first thing you said when we asked the first question. Yeah. Learn to listen. But what, how important is it to listen to the players? Oh, absolutely vital. I think at any level of the game, absolutely vital. I know you mentioned elite level there, and, uh, and, and it's even more important at elite level. I mean, I coached at Bath in the very late 80s and right the way through to 1996. And we were the best team in the Northern Hemisphere at club level. And that was not down to me. That The revolution had been started before that. But I realised when I got there that there were certain... Because we had a team full of international players. There were players in certain positions there that knew far more about some areas of the game than I did. And it would have been complete nonsense not to engage with them and listen to them about their thoughts and how we should be playing and how we should be improving in these areas of the field. So, But, I mean, the logic behind it is... These are the guys that play the game. These are the guys that are involved in the heat of the battle. You know, the emotion, the internal emotion of the battle. You know, and I'm a coach and I've not played the game, well, when I was at Bath 
hadn't played the game. 88, I finished in 81. Eight. I've not played the game for eight years. You know, game moves on. You get detached from it. I try. You try to immerse yourself as much as you can in coaching it, but it, coaching's not the same as playing game at all. Um, so really, really important, I think, to to engage with players and 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 ask them. Always ask them questions in a in, in a break in practice. And I, I think I mentioned this earlier on. First question for me was ask you, what do you think? How do you think this is going? If you're asking that question. You're opening yourself up there to, uh, well, it can come from all, you can get floods of answers from that and different responses and will respond appropriately. What do you do when you're working with a player who seems to be struggling to understand your key messages or the principal player from a session? Yeah. What strategy have you deployed to then help that individual or a, a unit of players? Yeah, I think certainly with the, with the individual player, um, I'll probably, what I did, what I learned to do um, was just take the player on one side in the middle of the session and ask him what, what, the, what he felt the issues were and what I call, I call coaching in the moment. So don't leave it till after the practice. Actually do it in the moment when it's fresh in his mind um, because I've often found with, when you give feedback to players, sort of, a, a, and I'm talking about the professional era now, sort of a day after a game and whatnot, they'll have forgotten what went on. Uh, they'll, they'll come up with an answer because they know you want one. And they'll try and come up with what they think is the answer that you want. So it might be completely irrelevant to what was going on in their heads at the time. So I find this coach in the moment thing really important. Just pulling a player on one side in the middle of a practice, which a lot of coaches don't like to do because they think, oh, it's disrupting the, the clean hands practice that I've prepared in great detail. But actually, Jesus, does it matter? You know, a player can get a knot and go down injured and he's out of the game for 30 seconds and that's all it is. Pull on one side, you know, what, what's the issue here? And just have that conversation with him there, there and then. I think the other thing too is that um, if you develop a real environment of togetherness as, as a group, um, I'm a big believer in developing a family as opposed to a team because I think it's a stronger bond. And I mean, you two highlighted this exceptionally well right at the start when we were talking before, um, that players will rally around. If there is a player or two or three players who seem to be struggling, the best, the best advice they can get is from their peer group, not from the coach. Uh, I think if you can develop that and, and if you've got the capacity within the group where other players can deliver information and help, that's certainly my experience has been that that's the most important uh, most important way, the most effective way probably of doing it is a peer group rallying around and helping out. And it's, I actually ran, I'm trying to think when it was now, it's not that long ago, it's about six years ago, I ran for two years at my old school from which I got expelled, Lancaster Royal Grammar School. I ran two camps for, for, for little kids and they were 10 to 16 years. So there was 10 to 13 and 14 to 16, two groups, two age groups. And I actually handpicked the coaches. With, with co the coaches were either current school teachers or were coaching themselves, but they'd all been players that I'd coached. So they all knew my modus operandi, as it were. 
And I said, look, I a bit of an experiment, this. I said, but we've got to get it right because parents are paying for this. I said, I want to be able to develop this um, disability, this game intelligence and players taking responsibility, ownership, leadership, the role thing that I was talking about before, and to prove that it can work at this particular age group. So we worked incredibly hard. And I remember the second year, I think it was, I wasn't brave enough for the first year. The second year, I remember saying to the parents as they left their kids, um, the kids went off to get changed before the first session on the first day, saying, look, please, if you can, come back Thursday afternoon. This was a Monday morning, will you? I said, because you'll be able to, I'll be able to stand on the touchline and watch the session that the players will run themselves alongside you. And I remember saying that. I'd not even consulted the other guys who were, when uh, the parents went, they said, what the bloody hell did you say that for? They said, you talk about 10 to 13-year-old kids running their own session. I said, well, there's a challenge for them. And um, sure enough, we, we, we pulled it off. There were a couple of times when the kids came over and said, uh, we're struggling a bit here, Mr. Ashton. What can we do? I said, just go and have a little chat. I said, you have a two-minute break, have a little chat and uh, see what you come up with. And they did. So it was very refreshing. It was pretty exciting, exhilarating. But it just shows, I think, if you persevere with that sort of approach, that um, the group will, the family, whatever you want to call it, will gradually pull together and they'll be more inclined to help those who are struggling out than the ones that uh, are used to the coach dealing with everything. Yeah. yeah, it does. And you've touched on, Brian, about environments uh, and teams, groups, and what you, you talked about or mentioned as the family. How do you mm. go about building a healthy learning and working environment or family for the players? Hang on, let me just write something down so I don't forget it. Yeah, so I think number, number one, let's go back to responsibility, to try and get players to accept responsibility for things that happen on the field, you know, and and to understand also at this point, I think, that I've come across players at all levels of the game who don't want to accept it because it, it sort of prevents them from having an out if things go wrong. They're saying, oh, we're just following what the coach said. So there are players at all levels of the game who won't want this responsibility. So starting with, Ron, this, I think it's four things. If, you, if you're trying to work to give players responsibly, uh, responsibility and ownership, then you've got to give them learning. You've, you've got to help. You've got to provide sessions that, that help them, that help teach that, that help them to learn how to take responsibility. And I sort of tried to indicate that earlier with my role thing. So it's responsibility, learning. Then when they need recognition too, you know, we're very quick to jump on players when they don't do things well. I think we should be twice as quick to jump on players when they do do things well, to praise them, uh, give them give them that sort of recognition. So we've got responsibility and recognition. And the fourth one, but if you get those three right, then it leads to a lot of joy and happiness. So the players are enjoying what they're doing, they're having fun. Well, fun, of course, underpins all games because that's why we start playing them in the first place. But I think that responsibility, learning, recognition and joy are four fundamentals of developing uh, this, this family, this togetherness. And the, the other thing is to, for it to be effective, 
Um, and I'm sure you two guys will know this because you said before you speak to, to one another every day and you're very close, is to have that uh, element of respectful challenge inside the group, inside the family, where everyone's allowed to challenge everyone else, but in a respectful manner. So the coaches can challenge the players, but in a respectful manner, uh, and even more respectful manner if he does it publicly in front of other players. Uh, but the opposite ha uh, can occur as well, that players in a respectful manner can challenge the coaches um, and you develop an environment. And I, and I call it a sort of a vibrant family. A vibrant for me is very positive and purposeful and proactive and optimistic. And if you have that respectful challenge in it, then, you know, you can very often develop an environment that's got all those words in it. I'm going to say there's nothing worse than, than the opposite, where players are absolutely terrified to ask questions and challenge. You've obviously been a very forward-thinking coach throughout your career, certainly in your latter years. You become more of a sage, more of a lots of wisdom around that. But what, in your opinion, will be the next frontier for coaching to develop? Well, it sadly, from my point of view, it looks as though we might be on the way to it already, and that is going down the uh, science of coaching route, where it's a lot of analytical stuff, data playing according to artificial intelligence tells us what's happening on the field, predicts what's happening. That's a sad one for me. That takes away a lot of the stuff. And I know I only flipped through the, your Goldust book, but I think a lot of the stuff you guys focus on and what we've talked about, the emotional side of coaching. I think it's the emotional stroke, mental side of coaching is an area that's Certainly in team games, it's, it's talked about a lot, but I'm not all that sure it's addressed very much. So I think that's probably the area that certainly I've spent a lot of time uh, thinking about, reflecting on and working on um, in the past 10, 15 years of my coaching coaching life. It's a really interesting one. It's I think coaches need to be able to deliver that side, because they have the, the most contact with the players. But I think I would hope that maybe coaches who feel they need help on that will take on conciliaries who are probably specialists in that area who actually help develop the coach. So the coach can help develop the players. I, I, I'm, I'm not a big fan of sports psychologists talking to players, but I'm a big fan of sports psychologists sitting down now and again with coaches and sort of explain how you can develop the mental side of the game through some of the practices and conversations you have with players, how you develop mental robustness and agility, um, how you develop the, the emotional connections with players. And actually the other area which we talked about before is the game intelligence. Cause I think, we might mention that now and again, but I think most of the coaching that I've seen, certainly in our sport, actually takes away game intelligence, doesn't add to it. Got a lot of it systems, structures, games, plan, numbers based, which restricts and is, is prescriptive and restricts what players can do. So, so I hope 
I hope and pray that it goes more down that, that side, the mental, emotional side, game intelligence side, but I've got a horrible feeling it's already started on a slippery slope towards the science side of coaching that obviously takes the emotion out of the game or tries to. Well, Brian, look, from the, from the first question that we asked today, you've, you've had me on the edge of my seat with that answer and it's gone on throughout and it really has someone who coaches and teaches and, and really I'm in a fortunate position to impact people's lives. I'm sat here and I'm, I'm taking things from just constantly throughout this podcast. So I've got to thank you personally for that. I know my dad will, uh, he'll feel the same from both of us. We got to thank you for coming on. This has been absolutely tremendous. It's Golders podcast. You've just, I don't say you sprinkled Golders. I think you've just thrown it all over the place. Everyone's going to be getting some. So I want to thank you from us for coming on today. Well, yeah, thank you too. It's been a real privilege to be involved with you. I've really enjoyed it. It doesn't feel like a podcast, whatever that's supposed to mean. It just feels like a really good chat around uh, around coaching, well, around life as well. Because I think, you know, you can't divorce dealing with people from life, can you? It's people first, game second, or people first. When I was teaching, I was a history teacher. It was teaching. I, I learned eventually, it took me a long time, to teach the kids first and then the subject second. And it's the same in my sport. Teach the people first, get to know them first, then teach the game after that. Thanks for tuning in to the Golders podcast today. If you enjoyed this episode and you haven't already subscribed, please do so. Your continued support is highly appreciated and it means so much to us knowing that the content that's being produced is providing value in people's lives. If you would like to know more or get more information from us, you can follow us on Twitter at Gold Dust Podcast. And also you can visit our website at thegolddustcoach.com. Thank you, everybody.